Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, Episode 32. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors and malicious actions. A big thank you to all those folks on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel that provide the intel that we talk about on this segment of the podcast. These wonderful humans are in the channel sharing information day in and day out. When I recently asked one of the main contributors why they put in the work, they simply said, this is how we make everyone safer. And I think that's pretty freaking awesome. And Matt, thank you for coming in to chat Intel again. It's always an honor to have you on the show. I love being here. And Chris, you could not give a, a more welcome, more honest introduction to folks about that Intel channel we've got. Huge thanks to everyone over there who continues to just provide us with that good word and just keep protecting and, and spreading that knowledge. We love it. We love to see it. Awesome. We're going to kick things off today with a little APT41 action. For those that may not be familiar, APT41 is a prolific Chinese cyber threat group that carries out state-sponsored espionage activity in parallel with financially motivated operations. We actually talked about them in one of the most recent Intel chats. Um, they've been active since 2012 and are also known as Wicked Panda. If you remember the 2017 Equifax breach, then you're familiar with their handiwork. They're back in our sites today because researchers from Threatmon have uncovered a targeted PowerShell backdoor malware attack that bypasses normal detection methodology and allows them to execute commands, download and upload files, and gather sensitive information from compromised Windows systems. The tactics these threat actors are using seem extremely advanced. Matt, can you walk us through the technical approach they're taking? Yeah, absolutely. So so first and foremost, this is an interesting take. APT41 is a group that's been around for a while. Uh, they, they did come out in the threat mom report and announce or kind of discuss that it's been happening or this group's been around since 2012. They definitely got a lot of history on them. Uh, in this case, I believe the piece of malware that they focused on is, as you mentioned, a PowerShell-based backdoor. For all intents and purposes, that is exactly what it sounds like. It is a backdoor that's based on using PowerShell for all of the different functionality that an adversary might need. I believe this script included things like executing commands, downloading files, uploading files, and also extracting data off the systems. Uh, and when we say PowerShell backdoor, we, we obviously mean we're using PowerShell to accomplish all of those things. A little more interesting about the approach that this group took was their use of a particular LOL bin or a living off the land binary. They use a file called fourfiles.exe in order to execute or kick off this process. Now, this is a common adversary approach. They utilize executables or binaries that are baked into the Windows operating system or really any operating system, but in this case, it's Windows. They use a baked-in executable in order to evade detection and then maybe execute from a privileged location and all sorts of other benefits that come with you know, not being caught, if you will. So from here, they utilize fourfiles.exe, load that up. I believe there is a registry key that is automatically created as well to establish some persistence. And then from there on out, PowerShell kind of takes over. So you might have an initial stage that will utilize fourfiles.exe to kick off that first stage or that first piece of malware. Registry key gets created for persistence. And then really operations are kind of handed over to PowerShell. I do remember reading as well that they utilize Telegram as a C2 server. I think that's another little interesting tidbit about infrastructure like this is you see the use of you know messaging apps and things like that as another form of C2 and perhaps maybe a, a harder vehicle or a harder route to be detected as well. 
because quite frankly, you know, you're telling me to go ahead and catch this. I'm looking for evidence of four files at exe, PowerShell, and then encrypted comms out the Telegram, which might not always be the easiest thing to uncover and might actually blend in with some system traffic pretty well. But regardless, it's always an interesting approach. And whenever we see a group that's had a tenure like APT41 continue to be on the scene, we know that those groups are active and they're out there looking for looking for stuff, looking for data, looking for things to steal. So an interesting take on this one, but a huge thanks to the folks over there for sharing the technical breakdown of this with us. One of the things I noticed in the, the analysis from Threatmon that I found very interesting was that they were using a mutex to evade detection. I'm kind of confused as what that strategy does. Are they locking up the processor for a second or what is the Yeah, so what will happen there is um, a mutex, uh, mutual exclusion is essentially an object that prevents, you know, thread different threads from accessing same types of resources. Some adversaries will use mutexes, and this is an interesting comparison, but they'll use it kind of as like a fire hydrant to a dog, if you will. It's a sign that says, I've been here to mark your territory. So there have been some pieces of malware in the past that have utilized mutexes as a way to say, you know, this malware variant is on the system. I'm reaching way back in time, but I think Poison Ivy actually did this way back in the day, was they utilized mutexes to identify versioning. Uh, In other cases, which, which I think we see in this case as well, you use mutexes as a way to establish some sort of identification on the system, like, hey, this system has been, you know, taken over, the malware has run successfully. Uh, and there's really a lot of ways to use that from an anti-forensics perspective or from a uh, defense evasion perspective. If you've got a, an endpoint tool that's monitoring mutexes or looking for things, it's a quick way to know whether or not you've got a, you know, advanced AV or other sort of detection capability on the system. So that's option number one. Option number two would be to use it as a way to, once again, kind of mark your territory or to give the malware that uh, indication that says, hey, you know, you're installed and it's kind of like a marker for, for lack of a better term. The marker gets then used as a thing for the malware to determine, you know, what, what type of install it is or what different steps should be there. Hmm. Very interesting stuff. And the next one I got is very much related. It's a subgroup of APT41 called EarthLongZ. Uh, they've been targeting organizations based in Taiwan, Thailand, the Philippines, and Fiji. The campaign abuses a Windows Defender executable to perform DLL sideloading while also exploiting a vulnerable driver to disable security products installed on the host via a Bring Your Own Vulnerable Driver, or BYOVD, attack. This is a type of attack we just talked about last week with Oakill. Is this a tried and true attack method, or are we seeing the growth of a new successful technique? Yeah, so I think in this case, it is one of those techniques that we're going to see continue coming up. I think this goes back to that bring your own driver or bring your own compromised driver, that BYODV or whatever it is. You know, you've got these techniques amongst adversaries that sometimes get a lot of traction and it becomes, you know, the flavor du jour, if you will. In other cases, you've got groups who learn how to use a certain thing and they continue to exploit that as much as they possibly can as long as it's working for them. And uh, in this case right here, we did see the use of that BYOVD, that bring your own vulnerable driver that uses a little bit of DLL sideloading in order to load a vulnerable driver. So you've got a combination of effects happening here. The first is I'm DLL sideloading, which in itself is a, an interesting way to achieve execution. And then subsequently bringing my own vulnerable driver or introducing a vulnerable driver 
that's actually the thing that I'm going to be exploiting and using to take advantage of whatever's happening on the system. Uh, in this case, I believe the driver that they were loading, Zamguard64.sys, was then subsequently used to disable security products that were found on there. And that was one of the techniques or that they've been seen using. Uh, there's another one that I believe was described in this article. And again, huge props to Trend Micro folks for sharing this with us. Uh, a new way to disable security products, a technique that they've dubbed stack rumbling, which takes advantage of image file execution options or IFEO, a new denial of service technique. So lots of, I'm going to call it at a very high level, operating system abuses taking place on the back end that look for ways to obviously, of course, load malicious code if possible, get my malware thing to run and hopefully maintain some sort of, or hopefully provide me some sort of permissions I can use to kill processes if I need to. In this case, Trend did list a really good list of processes that were being targeted. Looks like it was mostly all security software. Uh, I think you may have mentioned this as well, but it is security software that appears to have prevalence in Asian countries, uh, East Asian countries to be specific. The attack itself was labeled as targeting Taiwan, Thailand, Philippines, and Fiji. And we see certain vendors existing in that world that may not have a significant or even any market share in other parts of the world. Therefore, it's a list of executables that we you know, may not be familiar with if, if you don't know kind of the side of AV and malware, but they're definitely a list of security products that you'll see prevalent in that area. The other interesting thing about this attack that I found, and they mentioned this too as part of this campaign, they're utilizing drivers to install a Microsoft RPC. So and let me be kind of clear about what's happening there. They're installing their drivers by utilizing kernel-level services by using Microsoft RPC instead of, this is probably the comparison I should have said earlier, instead of using Windows APIs. Uh, so there's multiple different ways to load, I'm just going to say load code, load ones and zeros uh, within the Windows operating system. And Microsoft RPC actually is a unique form of evasion because it allows for the same object or the same final result, which is code executing, but it goes or it evades or it subverts API monitoring. And that is something that we actually see quite a lot of in an endpoint technology perspective these days is a Windows API monitoring to look for certain calls, certain abuses and things like that. So a couple of you know high-level takeaways from this one. Again, a subgroup of APT41 out there utilizing all sorts of vulnerabilities, bring your own driver, uh, IFEO, and things like that. And then subsequently also using kernel-level services instead of API to get their Xcode executed. Long story short, you see a bunch of different evasion techniques or very stealthy techniques kind of layered on top of each other. And we start to get an idea that an adversary like this is really trying their hardest to evade detection as, as much as they possibly can. And when they list something like this as a subgroup of an existing APT, is that like a spinoff company coming off of a more established company? Or are they going to end up being their own APT eventually? Or is this someone moonlighting on the weekend? Yeah, so this is, I think, Chris, you and I have talked about this before on this podcast, where these APT groups or these threat groups out there have their own kind of hierarchies and personnel and tooling softwares and all sorts of things. You know, they're, they're, they're businesses, they're, they're companies. I mean, they may be state-sponsored or state nexus, but there's, there's still an entity that has operations. 
That being said, you know, if you think about and you kind of described it as like a spinoff, I like that idea. But if you think about a corporation having, you know, a, a, an entity, if you will, or a, a DBA or a smaller part of their organization, maybe a side business or something, um, you can certainly see that. The other reason why they sometimes get referred to as subgroups is that they may utilize some of the same malware. They may uh, approach some of the same targets. They may have some of the same objectives and things like that. But they might not be as prolific, but the ties to them are still there. So I know we've talked before about how these groups come about and, and threat intelligence clustering and things like that. But long story short, if I've got a threat group that I recognize has multiple members, it's got multiple objectives, it's got targets, it's got malware, it's got atomic indicators, it's got all sorts of things that I can attribute to that group. And then I find a small subset of those things used by this other group over there. You know, I, I may not say, well, this is all clearly the same. I may say these operators appear to kind of, as you described, potentially moonlighting off to the side, if you will. They're utilizing what they, what they know at work, you know, but they're doing things a little bit differently. I'm so fascinated by the way these organizations <laughs> it's are It's a business, yeah. man. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fun little business. All right. The next one I got, uh, researchers have uncovered an attack that is based on a classic sideloading technique. Here we are again consisting of a clean application, a malicious loader, and an encrypted payload with various modifications made to those components over time. This latest campaign adds a twist in which a first-stage clean application sideloads a second clean application and auto-executes it. The second clean application then sideloads the malicious loader DLL. After that, the malicious loader DLL executes the final payload. The threat actors are known as Operation Dragon Breath or Golden Eye Dog, and they specialize in the online gambling space. The original campaign targeted Chinese-speaking Windows users engaged in online gambling, and initial infection vectors were distributed via Telegram. Can you shed any light on the infection chain here, and what do we know about the motivations behind the attack? Yeah, so you, you called it out in your description. This is a, a really weird, I'm not going to say weird in the sense that it's, you know, so far out that no one ever saw it coming, but maybe I'll instead say it's it's definitely feels like sometimes a little more work than it needs to be. <laughs> um, this dragon breath attack, as I think it was been called, if I'm reading, if I remember reading that correctly, Operation Dragon Breath is an interesting approach because as you mentioned, it's kind of a double clean application load. So let's just, let's back up for a second. We've talked a lot about kind of BYOVD and side loading and things like that. Uh, typically, what happens is you'll find an executable in an environment where you can sideload from. You'll subsequently then sideload and you'll be on your way. One of the things that, and everyone should remember this when you're reading through malware reports or trying to figure out how adversaries do what they do. One of the things is I, I need that original application to execute, right? I could go out there and write the world's most vulnerable exe ever. And as long as I can get everyone to run it, I can do whatever it is I need to do. But it's that I need to get you to run it part that is really tough for, for some adversaries. So then we get obviously into the world of spear phishing. How do I get them to click a thing? How do I get you to open this file or download? Like, what's the bait, right? Uh, so that's the part that, that they usually need to work through. So in this case, in here, we've got a pretty good starter bait, which is a first stage clean application. One of the things that's called this to our alert has been that the clean application will load a second clean application. And it's the second clean application where the malicious DLL loader or the malicious DLL actually gets loaded. 
And then the normal attack chain takes over. The malicious DLL calls its thing, decrypts a bunch of encrypted instructions, loads them, calls a payload, executes that, so on and so forth. So this is really a study in a unique way to load malicious code in memory. I, I will say, I think the kind of double clean load, if you will, where a, you know, militia, a, an installer loads another installer or, or runs another executable is probably a defense evasion technique. If I give you an executable that ultimately leads in or ultimately leads to, to malware infection, you're probably going to say, oh, well, it was that, you know, that first executable that kicked me off, right? So if I give you A.exe and that launches B.exe and B is sideloading, you're probably going to write detection rules for A.exe because that's what you remember, what you remember seeing. But if I can add a few more steps in that process, I might be able to actually subvert some really high level detections and get around them. And the other thing that the adversaries did in this case as they were looking for ways to maintain persistence and to obviously achieve execution as well. They would use things, and I remember reading about executables for uh, Let's VPN, Telegram, WhatsApp installer. So what they're really doing is trying to say, all right, what types of executables can I use to get my users to click through this thing? That installation chain takes place, and then we get to you know malicious DLL, decoded instructions, and finally the ultimate payload itself. So I find it interesting that at the beginning of the analysis for this, they kind of talked about how the threat actors, quote unquote, fell so much in love with this adaptation that they used multiple variations of it, repeatedly swapping out a component in the process to evade detection at this step of the attack chain, which is exactly what we kind of hypothesized. This is yet another way to stay hidden, to evade detection or evade defenses, and then, of course, to achieve the ultimate goal, right? Execution. So... Yeah, that was my original thought when I read it, too, is some kind of obfuscation around detection. Here's one for the Reap What You Sow files. Uh, U.S. authorities have announced the seizure of 13 internet domains. The newly announced court-authorized seizure is a third wave of actions that U.S. law enforcement has taken against DDoS for hire services, which are also known as booter or stressor services. Along with the seizures, the U.S. announced that four individuals have pleaded guilty and are scheduled for sentencing later this summer, having been arrested in late 2022. The newly announced seizures are part of an ongoing international law enforcement effort named Operation Power Off. You know, I love seeing this stuff get pulled apart, but it does make me a little sad to see young people who are obviously talented going to jail for stuff like this. Uh, The defendants in this case are 19, 23, 23, and 37. Hopefully they can get to the other side and make some positive changes. Yeah, you know, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, as I've seen in movies. But uh, this is another case where someone found a way to make a quick buck, and that quick buck happened across U.S. jurisdiction. And in this case, you know, it led to a takedown. And you're right, they are some young folks there, ranging from uh, 23, 19 to 37. Three of the four of them were in Florida, and one of them was in San Antonio, Texas. You know, you've got some young folks who understand computing or just happen to meet the wrong person and happen to understand how to set up some infrastructure. This was a takedown of DDoS booter services or, you know, something that would allow you to kind of rent or purchase DDoS for higher services, if you will. Uh, and it's always interesting when we see these kinds of arrests and these takedowns happen. A lot of technical evidence goes into who actually runs these sites and who actually sits behind them. And I think it all just comes down to, you know, someone's got some really crazy technical skills. And we've talked about it before. 
they just happen to choose the wrong career. They could have probably been somewhere writing some amazing software, making amazing, legitimate money, but they decided to go another route. And yeah, best of luck to them and hope they come back out on the other side. Yeah, I, I still can't help getting a bit of schadenfreude out of the whole thing, though. <laughs> I know. It, it definitely, a reap what you sow is the perfect kind of category. It might even be a segment we'll have to do on this podcast at some point where we just talk about, you know, adversaries getting caught doing illegal things. And hopefully there's no mugshots of surprise out there. <laughs> The BlackBerry Threat Research and Intelligence Team has discovered a new campaign from the Sidewinder APT group against Pakistani government organizations. Active since 2012, the group has been observed targeting military, government, and business entities with a particular focus on Pakistan, Afghanistan, China, and Nepal. Sidewinder primarily makes use of email spear phishing, document exploitation, and here we are again, DLL sideloading in an attempt to avoid detection and deliver targeted implants. This newest campaign utilizes a server-side polymorphism technique that allows the actor to potentially bypass traditional signature-based antivirus to deliver the next stage payload. I think this is the kind of stuff most of us won't see in our day-to-day, but can be a sign of things to come. How does polymorphism work? Based on what I've read, it sounds like the code rewrites itself with some tiny permutations so that any kind of checksum or hash generated does not match the existing profiles. Is that the gist of it? Yeah, so you called it out correctly. It's exactly that. It's making little changes here and there, altering your appearance. Uh, and from an adversarial perspective, you're going to do that via things like encryption, obfuscation. And what you're really trying to do is make sure that no two malware samples look the same. And uh, this can be done in, in a wide range of ways. You can polymorph code. You can change how the binary looks in memory. We can change how the binary is downloaded. We can alternate between different techniques of how it's broken apart, pieced back together, and things like that. And what this does is it makes it very, very difficult for endpoint software or even, I'd say, cloud-based kind of solutions as well that may be specialized in antivirus. It makes it very difficult for them to write sturdy signatures or high-fidelity signatures. And let me be very clear by that. The server-side polymorphism means that the polymorphing capabilities are done at the server side, meaning before the malware is pushed down to its victim systems. In the past, you could write a detection for the polymorphic function, you know, the polymorphic capabilities, because those in itself are very suspicious. You wouldn't, you know, a normal executable doesn't change the way that it looks all the time. What they've done in this case is they've moved the polymorphism to the server side which makes it a little bit harder to detect and makes it a little bit harder to write high-fidelity signatures for to the point where you could have two infected systems side-by-side, side, run a, a scanner on each of them, ranging from AV to maybe a Yara scan or an EDR full intensive scan or something. One of them may pop, the other one may not. And that's the goal, is to give that false sense of security or that false sense of not infected, if you will. Uh, like any other campaign, you know, this particular group and, and a huge hat off, by the way, to the BlackBerry team, because they have some beautiful graphics in this in this threat report, which I was fun to see. But uh, they utilize some of the same old things that we're used to, you know, obfuscated JavaScript, uh, weaponized documents. I think there was RTF documents being seen in there. They have been known to target the Pakistani government, which, of course, is something that is worth noticing if you operate in those circles or in that part of the world. Luckily, the, the article does go through different types of indicators that are also associated with this, the different stages of download, the malicious documents, the domains and things like that. And this might be a case where we'll expand beyond just binary detection and instead look for 
potentially suspicious network traffic or other types of things that might match some of the indicators they provided. Yeah, there's almost always a place in that chain where we can focus on and build detections that are reliable. And a lot of times the network ends up being the lowest common denominator as well. Uh, The last one I have for us today is hot off the press. Uh, CISA has issued an advisory letting the public know that the FBI has used a court order to take down a Russian government-controlled malware network that compromised hundreds of computers belonging to NATO member governments and other Russian targets of interest, including journalists. The disruption effort, called Operation Medusa, took the malware offline on May 8th. The malware was created by a unit in Russia's Federal Security Service, or FSB, successor to the Soviet-era KGB. Developed and codenamed Snake, records show the malware being distributed as far back as 2004. So think LimeWire Napster days. The unit called Turla used the malware to selectively target high-value devices used by allied foreign ministries and governments. The software was able to record every keystroke a victim made and send it back to Turla's control center. This seems like some very high-level espionage utilizing advanced techniques. I've barely had a chance to look at this given it popped up into the Intel channel just the other day. Do you know anything about how the malware operated in secrecy for so long? And given this was dubbed Russia's premier long-term cyber espionage malware, do you think this will be a blow to their efforts? We could probably do an entire episode just on this campaign and this malware itself. This is, I think, one of the most significant releases that we're going to see for, for quite a while here. This is, in my opinion, you know, this is SolarWinds level stuff. This is, as you mentioned, a long-term ongoing campaign severe intelligence collection on very sensitive targets. Snake malware is one that utilized P2P communications. It existed mostly on edge devices or or infrastructure or edge infrastructure-based devices, so it sat at that kind of internet-facing level. It had its own communication protocol. It was utilizing encryption and fragmentation to uh, get through detection techniques. Uh, you got to think as well about where devices sit, where they sit in relation to security technology. A lot of times the edge is behind some, maybe some load balancers or some really straightforward devices like firewalls and things, but they might not be receiving the same benefits of internal devices that technically have like the crown jewels installed on them. But, you know, Snake was pretty prolific. It was installed on multiple organizations, government networks, research facilities, journalists. Of course, journalists always get thrown inside of here. Uh, The FSB has also been linked to attacks on things like education, small businesses, media, critical infrastructure, financial, community. I mean, it's the the target list is likely endless here. And Chris, as you mentioned, it's ranged all the way up to uh, victims within NATO countries. Long story short, your question, will this impact long-term collection efforts? Absolutely. I would not be surprised if similar to some of the previous state-sponsored types of spying techniques we've seen before, if this was not a data feed that a few groups or a few high-ranking individuals were relying on pretty heavily for different types of intel and pulling things back. So I would definitely expect to see some sort of shakeup, and you and I will never see it. But I would definitely expect to see some sort of shakeup in their ranks and definitely a the feed we used to rely on is no longer there. And I think this will end up being a pretty significant hit for a lot of folks. This is going to take this is one that's going to take time to assess the damage of for sure. But like I said, this is a huge impact. And I think one that we should probably spend a little bit of dedicated time on because it's going to be one that unravels very slowly. Yeah, I love that idea. I think we should maybe next week we'll come back and do a focus session on this one. I've seen the CISA documents like 50 pages long, so it'll, it'll take some <laughs> it's, time. It's light reading on a Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, Matt. Thanks. This was another great one for the books. Uh, Really excited to deep dive this snake malware next week. And I know there's going to be no shortage of Intel coming out of the Intel channel because the bad guys don't sleep. So (laughs) as it is, there was already a couple of articles posted today. So again, huge thanks to our Intel folks. Huge thanks to our Lima Charlie community. I'll see you on the next one, Chris. All right. Take care. And that concludes episode 32 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode. We'll be right back.